They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Extraordinarily hard, actually, is the North Star and Ursa Major Minor. And so to me, that is really fascinating because I think that probably more than likely the preeminent gateway in the sky, if I had to put money on one gateway that actually exists, that the ancients knew about, that many cultures refer to, I would say it is the gateway that aligns with the North Star or the Axis Mundi or the world tree, the world pillar, the world mountain, etc. And so, yeah, so there's lots of literature and material about various gateways. The one I tend to concern myself with the most is that one, everything related to Polaris. Welcome to the one-on-one podcast with your host, Juan Ayala. I'm tired of saying welcome back to another episode, bro. I'm sorry. I have to just switch it up because I'll go insane. Just welcome back to another episode of the Juan Juan Podcast. I say that every single episode for the last 112 episodes that I've recorded. I've said the same thing. Whatever. So here we are. This has been a long time coming. I'm really excited for this next guest because I love all his work. And we've podcasted together on other shows that he's been there and I've been there, but we've never had the one on one experience. And here we are finally symbolic studies. Mario Garza. How are you, bro? Hey buddy. I am solid. I'm stoked to be here, man. Yeah. We've been on a few shows together 
but I've never had the Juan on Juan experience. <laughs> so this is awesome. For those that don't know of your page, pages, which I encourage people to go follow you and I'll post the links in the description. Where can people find you, Mario? Because you have some really excellent, literally symbolic studies. And I think that symbolic literacy is very important when it comes to any aspect in life because symbols are the language of the soul. Where can people find you, Mario? Sure. Uh, Symbolicstudies.com is my website. So you can find all my socials from there. But I typically encourage people to follow me on Instagram if they're so inclined. So symbolic.studies on Instagram. I'm also on YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, things like that. Awesome. And I'll have the links to that in the show notes. So we've been talking for probably a few months now. right? We've been sure. going back and forth. I'll send you a message, whatever. And we had been planning on doing something because you've always, you always talk about the Zodiac and all these things and you always bring up portals and I'm a sucker for anything that's interdimensional. <laughs> but before yeah. we get into all of that, what got you into this sort of, uh, to this sort of topics, the occult and symbology and all these things, what got you down that rabbit hole literally? Yeah, for sure. You know, I've always been a very visual person. We were chatting before we started the show that I'm a graphic designer. So I've been designing for nearly 20 years, about 20 years. And I've always illustrated. I've always been a visual learner. So I feel like I've just paid attention to what my eyes have always seen. And when I started doing design work, it really gave me an opportunity to spend a lot of time looking at different images, studying various icons, kind of getting into color theory, you know, um, compositions that people find appealing. I've worked on so many different projects over the years, and that has really helped me refine my eye, right? And so I've just always appreciated uh, the visual arts, you know, filmmaking, things like that as well, right? And at one point, actually, what really got me into everything was a buddy wanted me to design a tarot website for him. And he said that if you are going to do this, then you should probably know how the system works, essentially. And so he went out, he bought like a dozen books on the tarot. He gave me a few of them. And I already thought very arrogantly, I thought I knew about symbolism because I was already a designer, right? But it wasn't until I opened my first tarot book that I realized that honestly, I just didn't know shit. And so this book blew me wide open because it exposed me to just this whole new world. And then from there, I got some decks. Uh, the first deck I got was the Crowley deck. And I wasn't even that aware, you know, of his history and how infamous he was or anything like that. He was a good guy. But that, <laughs> <laughs> and so that opened me up to just this whole new line of thinking involving mythology and astrology and, you know, the planets and things like that. So that kind of opened up the gateways for me and reading his work. And then from there, I realized that straight symbolism is just a thing that you can get into. And there's a lot of great symbologists out there. And then, you know, obviously this is all hooked up with occultism and everything else. And so it was kind of this snowball effect, but, you know, looking back on my life, I think that being an artist, a lifelong artist, definitely played its part in everything. Art and obviously, sorry, just real quick, conspiracy no, theories too, right? And just kind of, you know, knowing that um, 
symbols can be used as a programming tool, are used as a programming tool. And so looking into mind control and everything else and realizing that, you know, the masses are influenced through symbolism, that got me even more inspired to just dive deep and, you know, just trying to understand the world around me. Art is magic. Creating art, the process of creating art is magic. And it, it's a philosophy and how you said it follows all these different doctrines and all these different sets of rules. It's a system. It's a magical system because a lot of the times art is what's in the subconscious bleeds through into art. That's why I tell people to pay attention to these movies. And it's very cliche to say, oh, the Illuminati and all these conspiracy theories. Sure. It's cliche, but it's the truth. They speak. They're not going to come out and be like, hey, X, Y, Z. And this is our this is the way that we do it. And all these things. These are people who have all the time in the world who believe that they get reincarnated every so often and they just keep on going. So they have all the time in the world. They know this game of waiting and being patient. Right. They know about this. So when they're putting out all these movies and all the symbolism that's in it in pop culture, we see it all the time. You see it with with music frequencies. It goes back to the days of Plato Republic, where he talked about limiting the arts in order so it wouldn't talk to the souls of people. So they wouldn't want to break out of the system. And we obviously know that Plato was very influential, but the person that inspired him was actually Pythagoras. And who knows where Pythagoras got his stuff because he's the one that allegedly established all these crazy mystery schools. And one of which that supposedly Jesus Christ himself attended. That's the whole thing that he was an ascended master. So Pythagoras would essentially be JC's daddy. <laughs> if you really look at it, cause he established all these crazy mystery schools and all these things. So the symbolism goes back and it speaks to our primordial roots. And that's how we get archetypes and all these sort of things, which are what Plato even talked about that. We already know these things. And I like the way that Plato puts it because I recently went into visited a friend of mine's bookstore and being in that environment, I want it. I want to be able to read a book without touching it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but we got into that conversation and it's about the experience of reading it, of extracting that information from that book, right? Because that's the Faustian deal. If you're able to, Elon Musk comes along and is like, hey, I'll give you all the knowledge in the world if you just put this chip inside of you. But the, what, are the, what are the cons of that? What, well, you're going to be connected to the hive mind. We can control you at, the, at any point in time. Would you take that? Would you take that deal? Mario, would you, if Elon Musk came to you and was like, hey, dude, you're going to be the first person ever. We're going to put this Neuralink in your brain. And as soon as you put it on, you're going to know everything that there is to know about everything on the Internet. But you might be susceptible to ah, demonic attacks every now and again through the Internet because the Internet is a portal. <laughs> would you take yeah. it? Yes or no? I think I'll pass on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the offer, though. 
But this idea, right, where it's like you will get every, like the Midas touch. It's like, well, it sounds really great. But when you're in actuality, when you start to think of it, I don't really know that I'd go there. So for those that don't know, the way I understand tarot is it's the journey the soul goes through in order to ascend. If you had to explain tarot to somebody in a in a nutshell what would you how would you describe it because i know you're known mostly for your well i know you mostly for your deciphers of the tarot cards and the zodiac and how they all relate what's tarot how would you describe tarot for those that don't have zero fucking idea right great question you know it's a tricky one too because it encodes so many different things Um, if you want to look at it as an astrological tool there is just endless amounts of research to do if you want to look at it as a compendium of mythology you can certainly look at it that way if you want to look at it just as a psychological tool for reflection um, to gain a deeper awareness of self or situation you can use it that way so it's almost kind of like the ultimate um you know uh, what do they call it uh like those blades that have like a million different little components in it. You know, those knives that have like 12 different things kind of going on. Swiss army knife, (laughs) Swiss army knife. Thank you, man. Yeah. It's like a Swiss army knife. You can use it for so many different things. It's, it's kind of insane actually. And as I've been doing readings publicly for people, you know, I spent many years doing readings for myself and for friends and everything else, but it wasn't until maybe three or four months ago did I start doing it for people, for followers and, and what have you? And since then, my awareness of the tarot has really grown quite a bit. And my understanding of its function has grown quite a bit as well. So there's a whole wide spectrum of tarot users out there. And it's almost like night and day what we are interested in. And so there is a bubblegum mall flavor of tarot for soccer moms, you know, and there's plenty of tarot readers that like to interpret it that way. And that's fine. There are people who are primarily concerned with fortune telling, you know, as an example, that's not something I'm personally interested in. I think it's more uh, used. I think it's best used as a way to reflect on past energy and also check in on current energy. But I don't think necessarily that you want at least the average person, the average tarot reader or user, I don't think you want to use it to forecast things. And that's actually kind of a thing philosophically, personally, that I kind of have issue with. Um, it's one of the things that really drives me nuts about the conspiratorial truther community is this constant forecasting ahead, this constant um, prediction sort of game of trying to figure out what's going to happen. I, I would say the astrological community, too, in large part is pretty much obsessed with what's happening around the corner, but people rarely reflect to see if those forecasts or predictions ever came true, you know, but it's really fun to think about what's going to happen two months from now, six months from now, whatever. And so um, for me, you know, in a way it's a divination tool, just like any other divination tool as well. So people have been using anything and everything, um, for divination from bones to tea leaves to rocks and sand and twigs and everything else so in many ways the tarot is really no different it's just it's another system to connect to source uh if you want to call it that and from there it's like your angle and your perspective with it what you choose to do with it 
you know, it's up to you. So some people have a very strong uh, esoteric Jewish Kabbalistic sort of angle with the tarot, which I think is really fascinating and interesting, but like that is their lane with it, you know? Um, and so for me, um, it's just another tool for divination. And because it's a tool, just like a lot of other uh, tools, like a Swiss army knife, you know, you can use it for just a whole bunch of different purposes and reasons. It really just depends on your intention behind it. You know, I tend to use it more when I'm reading for clients as like a psychological tool. I think it's really good for reflection. I think it's really good to get to the heart of the matter. Um, there is something going on with synchronicity where I trust the process and I really trust the system that these are the cards that we're supposed to see and that we're supposed to reflect on. Even if they seemingly don't match the situation, um, I think that's probably more user error than anything else. Uh, but that's how I, I tend to use it personally is more of a psychological sort of thing. And I love the esoteric side of it. So even the tarot for me, I spend way more time studying the tarot like a book than I do using it for divination purposes. And so you can have a relationship with the tarot and you can learn about all sorts of different myths and occult secrets and whatever, and never actually do a reading for yourself or for anyone else. So if you wanted to use it just as a book for research, then you could do that too. And that's actually another way that I use it quite a bit. So, uh, you know, reviewing the different decks and, um, how they vary, how the different cards vary and stuff. I get a lot of value out of that. So not a short answer. <laughs> and yeah, not it's a really concise one either. It's a loaded question. I mean, I know that. And and yeah. even myself, how you're saying there at the end, how you may learn about everything in it without even doing a reading for somebody. That's my case because the original original books back then were loose pieces of paper. So essentially a tarot deck is that. It's almost like a picture book, a mystical picture book of the way i've i've come to understand is the the different levels of ascension that the soul goes through in order to go through to the other side whatever that may be and mm. i've also heard you talk about how some people use it as some sort of mandalas where they meditate upon the picture and they're able to transport themselves to that area and almost use it as a sort of portal if you will and hopefully we're going to be talking about portals today because again i'm a sucker for sci-fi and, and anything interdimensional really gets my nipples hard so i know you do a lot of breaking down of the zodiac and you have your videos where you go through every single sign and they're really well put together the music is great your voice sounds awesome and then the production level of them is awesome and i'm i'm a bit jealous because i wish i could do short content like that because i know that's what people want and i try and do short clips of the podcast but sometimes it's hard to have all the context in there and i think that's what you do great that you're able to encapsulate such a deep video with with uh, really a nice breakdown of the symbology without getting too lost in the sauce, which that's, that's a gift. Rhetoric is a gift that a lot of people don't have in order to be able to transmit ideas efficiently. That's, that's something that a lot of people struggle with. I've struggled with that before too. When I ask a question, it's really long and convoluted and this and that. Well, it's like, well, get straight to the point. Some people are able to really nail it down. And that's what I like about your content. Cause it's quick, digestible, 
And that's what that's what the people want. If today nowadays people's attention spans are what? It's like a goldfish. A few yeah. seconds. Because we're we're conditioned, right? We're conditioned to the TikToks and all this stuff. They 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 limit your time that you're able to convey. On Twitter, they only put a certain amount of characters that you're able to put out there. It's only, you know, three minutes, no longer than three minutes. So that's why when you look at your analytics on YouTube the the average watch time for a video is not the entirety of the two hour video that you did it's 20 minutes 18 minutes whatever it may be if you do a minute long tiktok the average watch time is what eight seconds usually you know if you, <laughs> yeah if you look at your 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 analytics and one of the things that has always struck my and i've asked this to other people and they're not able to come up with anything but you've said before that certain astrological signs are portals and i think one of them was what the pisces is is one of them and i forget which is the other one and i learned recently because isn't this a pisces the vesicle pisces right it's the yeah, fish like sideways yeah yeah mm -hmm. well apparently florida this is a fishing shirt florida corresponds with pisces and it would make sense because people come here, right? And they don't ever go anywhere or do they, right? Spiritually, I mean, people come here to die. <laughs> people flock to Florida to retire and die. So it is some sort of portal that leads you somewhere that you don't, you don't come out of. You know what I mean? My neighbor's got his loud ass motorcycle on just now. Uh, but what do you mean by that? Because I've heard you say that and correct me if I'm wrong at any point in time, but you've talked about certain astrological signs being portals. Yeah, um, it's really fascinating because I've during my research, I've been surprised at how many signs and especially pairs of signs um, have been equated to being gateways, essentially, or portals, you know, openings to other places. And so the first one that I came across like that was Taurus, Taurus and Scorpio. Hey, so Taurus gang in the house. Sorry, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it's one of my favorite signs. The, the bull symbolism thing is amazing. You know, I spent a good years really diving into bull symbolism, cow symbolism, Taurus energy, all of the esoteric stuff. And one of the things that blew me away was the information saying that Taurus and Scorpio make a gateway. And the reason why they make a gateway is because when you're looking towards a very specific star in Taurus, uh, Aldebaran or Aldebaran, which is the eye of the bull, which is the bull's eye, right? That you are looking away from the center of the galaxy. And that when you're looking towards Scorpio, specifically the star Antares, and both of these stars are known as royal stars. So there's four royal stars in the zodiac, uh, in the constellations that make up the astrological signs, and they are connected to the fixed stars. And so the heart of Scorpio is Antares, and they say that when you're looking towards Antares, you're actually looking towards the center of the galaxy. And so uh, a lot of people say that the two crossed keys in the Hierophant card, which corresponds with Taurus, that it's a reference to these gateways. Um, the Golden Gate and the Silver Gate. Some people have referred to it that way. But then I started reading more information about Gemini, which is right after Taurus, 
and Sagittarius, which is right after Scorpio. And there's all sorts of gateway symbolism there as well. And then right after Gemini is Cancer, and right after Sagittarius is Capricorn. And what do you know? There's even more gateway symbolism with Cancer and Capricorn. And so with Cancer and Capricorn, Cancer is known as the gateway of man, and then Capricorn is considered the gateway of the gods. And so as an example, the Babylonians, they believe that you come via Cancer, which symbolically to me, this just reminds me of uh, the womb of your mother. You know, as you come through cancer, as you come through the divine feminine, you're going to exit through Capricorn. Uh, You're going to return to the earth, essentially. And Capricorn corresponds or is ruled by Saturn, which is Father Time, Kronos, all that kind of stuff. So symbolically, that definitely lines up and adds up. But, you know, these are just the signs of the Zodiac. And so there's other constellations out there that people say very similar things about. So uh, the Pleiades, as an example, which is right above Taurus, the seven stars of the Pleiades, uh, you know, they're referred to as the seven sisters a lot of the time. People believe that we come from the Pleiades and we return to the Pleiades. And uh, one of the things, you know, that make my nipples very, very hard, extraordinarily hard, actually, is the North Star and Ursa Major (laughs) Minor. And so to me, that is really fascinating because I think that probably more than likely the preeminent gateway in the sky, if I had to put money on one gateway that actually exists that um, the ancients knew about that many cultures refer to, um, I would say it is the gateway that aligns with the North Star or the Axis Mundi or the World Tree, the World Pillar, the World Mountain, etc. And so, yeah, so there's lots of literature and material about various gateways. The one I tend to concern myself with the most is that one, um, everything related to uh, Polaris. I want to bring up a picture that I put. We were talking about AI art before jumping in. Yeah. And I want to pull up a picture of a piece that I put into the art generator, the AI art generator. I'm trying to find it here on my desktop. I put in access what generator mid journey. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I put That's in, the one I played with. yeah, I put in access Monday. Nice. And it came up. I did with something a, very similar with a really trippy ass picture if i could find it where in the hell like i I would actually love to see it yeah all types of stuff here on my desktop so bear with me i'll find it here i'll I'll make sure to to show it up on the screen but yeah this idea that the north pole because as kids we've been always what are we taught that santa claus lives at the north pole it also corresponds with the Draco constellation, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, Draco is a northern constellation, yep. And I've I've heard people talk about that. I I I mean I believe I think even Tracy Twyman talked about something about the North Pole where it's it's again a portal and that Satan or somebody comes through there the devil and if you look at the map of the UN, it's a map from the North Pole. Really, if you look at it, it's a map facing right. down. Correct. Yeah. Do you think they're exactly. hinting at this? Like, because because what what I want to let people know is they have to understand that the same people that we talk about 
and the same books that we reference with all this crazy magic and and maybe not supernatural stuff but all the stuff that we're reading about they know about this they've known about it and that's why they're part of the societies that rule whatever side either the left pillar or the right pillar wherever of that corresponding magic or grimoire or whatever you, you know what i'm saying like they they know about yeah. this so they put it 100 they use it in their symbolism oh yeah absolutely you know um to me one of the most surprising things has been how much information there actually is about all of this out there if you choose to look into it and so i have a stack of books that i really need to get around to and it's all about the northern sky and so these constellations, Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, there's seven stars apiece. Ursa Minor, the tip of its handle, the seventh star, is actually the North Star itself. And so if people um, are unaware, if you were to take a time-lapse photo of the northern sky, Polaris is essentially still. So it's the hub of the wheel. And then you're going to create a big streak of stars revolving around it. And so, you know, from the perspective of Earth, it's almost like the heavens are this grand chariot wheel and the North Star is the axle. It's the thing that, you know, stays idle, essentially, almost like a top that you spin. Right. And so um, to me, in my opinion, what I've come across is that the stairway to heaven is a concept that exists for a very good reason. And it's because a lot of different groups, including the Egyptians, they believed that you go to the northern sky upon death. And if you read the box saga, they say the exact same thing, that your last breath, something to the effect of like it grows wings and goes to the northern sky or something like that, you know. And so this is the opening of the magnetosphere of Earth. And so this is why we have the northern lights, you know. And so there's a cusp or there's an opening at the northern sky and I believe that we live in some sort of nested toroidal system and that this middle opening is actually a way to go to other realms and likely, quote unquote, the other side. I'll just put it generically that way. But this opening, it's symbolic of a pole or a column or a pillar or a phallus. But, you know, where there's a pole, there's also a hole. And so actually both are happening, in my opinion, uh, you know, in this same general area symbolically. And so this pole or post or tree, the world tree, this is the trunk that the psychopomp that we refer to as Hermes or Mercury uses to go between realms. And so he's the messenger of the gods. And so he's the guide of souls. And so this uh, pole or pillar is actually a symbolic bridge or a symbolic gateway to the other side and so like i said there's a number of cultures that have acknowledged this that we come from the northern sky and return to the northern sky and there's both been you know um symbolically things attached to it that suggest that this is where heaven is and that this is also where hell is and there have been both gods and goddesses and positive and negative entities that have been associated with the northern sky so it seems like it's a whole big spectrum of things up there. Um, and the constellations that immediately surround the pole star, you know, tell a story as well about what this is, what this is all about. So in my personal opinion, you know, the seven stars of Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, this relates to the idea that it takes seven steps 
or there's seven processes like Azoth alchemy, you know, to go from this reality to the next reality. There's seven veils or there's seven spheres that you have to go through to go from this side to the other side and vice versa. And so I think that's why the number seven is really, really, really important here. So seven colors of the rainbow, seven days of the week, et cetera. You know, seven is a, a really big number for a lot of different reasons. Um, but I think partially what it speaks to is the number of steps, you know, to go from here to there and back. And that's what Ascension material, some of it is actually about, you know, it's about how to go through those seven steps and layers um, ascertain certain kinds of information and then return with that information. And then you can tell, you know, people in your lodge or in your mystery school or whatever, and you could do what you will with that information. Um, so yeah, that's kind of some of the elements, you know, in a nutshell, but that, you know, there's a million different threads we could pull out with all this. It goes on and on. Yeah. The number seven, right? Seven Elohims and all these, how you said seven days of the week. It is a very yeah. esoteric number, an occulted number, and it does have some value to a lot of different cultures sure. around the world. And I finally was able to find those R's. I'm going to pull it up here. I actually Sweet. pulled the ones. I think I have four, four of them. So what I was doing is I'll tell you here in a second. Let me pull it up. I don't want to interrupt you while you were going on your North Pole. So this is Ooh. Access Monday. This is what was one of them, and it's like some crazy, and this is the back cover of the zine that I'm working on. And it's got like these pillars, almost like a gateway type of thing. And then it goes inside mm. there. It's like a cave. And you got what looks like a horse and a person down here, like mm. looking up at it. That's the one. And then the one that really tripped me out was this one. <laughs> nice. Wow. And again, you have some sort of thing back here. And it's you were talking about the world tree. And mm -hmm. the right, the rainbow bridge. Would you say about Hermes that Hermes, tra Hermes traverses it? Yeah, basically that uh, they use this trunk or pillar or column as the way to travel from uh, realm to realm. Interesting. So you have here the roots. Yep. And it's, I guess, reality is encapsulated, and then you have all of the a uh, tree, and you have what looks like a yep. castle in here. It's very trippy because the, the more you look at it, again, these are mandalas, bro. You could literally sit here and meditate on this picture and you could travel into mm -hmm. it. You know what I mean? And it's really freaky that a machine essentially made this, you know, something right. essentially made this. Another one that I did was I was taking, I, I believe this is, oh. what was this one? So this is a homunculus black and white leaving the matrix. So wow. it's got like some like two pillars and then this entity leaving. I mean, it, it looks like a library too. Look at this. And I've always yep. we've always had this joke because I have friends right in, in the in the community. And we write a lot. We we come up with stories. That's what comic books are. We're constantly at work, and that's why I believe that that art is magic and it does cause synchronicities. And I'm going to take a note down before I forget. I want to talk to you about, about the, regarding the, yeah. the North Pole. But essentially when I'm writing stories and all these things, we've always made a joke that 
in history, the most shadiest people in history, and by shady, I mean lizardy, if they're actual lizards or not, or reptilian-esque people, always have the most books. They always have the biggest libraries. John D. had an extensive mm-hmm. life. He had the biggest library in Europe at one time. You had this this design mogul guy that's like this crazy guy. He's got the... When we looked it up online, because we were writing a story around it, he had over 50,000 books, and it was this guy who was into fashion. Like, what do you have? Mm. If you're into, what do you need so many? You're this crazy fashion guy, designer. What do you need 50,000 books for? So, and if you look at who has the most books in the world, essentially it's Jeff Bezos. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Amazon. So Amazon, yeah. the whole, the whole joke is that if you, the more books you get, the more you're able to manifest it. Cause essentially you have all these universes at your disposal. You can open yes. bibliomancy. You can open up a book and travel. I think that's what, that's part of some of the practices that they don't want you to know about in order to, how Manly P. Hall is able to sit down and give you an entire two-hour lecture without even blinking or coughing or doing almost in a... And I've always said that he's channeling it. But when you start to get into the more esoteric things such as building a mind palace, but even that insinuates some sort of supernatural ability in order to construct a mind palace. Then you have people who don't have an inner monologue there's people who can't think in pictures there's people who can't mm-hmm. do that type of stuff they can't construct a, a mind palace they can't so wh- who are the type of people who can is it a select few people who can do this sort of stuff you know what i mean like yeah. are, you're able to further develop that ability so the the joke is that the more books you have, which Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world, <laughs> and he has the he is at one point Amazon has the most books ever, essentially. So that's the joke. Oh and yeah. This one was. Wow. I was reading an alchemical text, and it was the 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 virtue of Zosimos of Panopolis, and he was one of the very first alchemists. In Egypt, mm. he was a follower of Hermes Trismegistus, and he has this dream which shows the first concept of a homunculus. And he is approached; he is talking to a priest in a glass vessel, and the guy's name is Eon, the priest of inaccessible places. So I put in Eon, the priest of inaccessible places, because it sounds really rad, like inaccessible. What does that mean? Inaccessible places. And the story goes that he's talking to this priest in this vessel, the homunculus. And essentially he starts to throw himself. He starts to throw himself up and he dissolves into himself. He starts to vomit himself Mm. and he dissolves into himself. But it's he turns into an anthroparion, which is the first concept of the homunculus in alchemy even Carl Jung that was fascinated by alchemy talked about this but it was symbolic as to the change of one material to the other Mm. but the way that it's painted speaking of symbolism and all these alchemical paintings is like little people or look at the alchemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz where it's 
it's all almost like a literal story but at the end of the day is was it really fiction <laughs> was it really symbolic or is this something that was practiced through right. in secret you know in secret societies we know about saturnalia how they would elect the pseudo king and at the end of that they would sacrifice the pseudo king so is the chemical right. wedding symbolic or was it like begonia the beating of a cow to pulp in order to generate bees was that a poetic wow. interpretation or was that an actual thing that they were doing what are your thoughts bro very very interesting okay yeah lots of thoughts actually um with all this stuff first off i just have to say the ai art thing is blowing my mind you know um i don't think i I know some people do some people who are early adopters they understand what a game changer this is but as someone who's been doing design work for decades this is such a huge game changer and the quality that's coming out of the AI is really, really something. It's very impressive. And even just the artistic sensibilities of the AI to contrast dark against light, to frame things, you know, the composition that it comes up with, it's really, really nuts. And there's a whole conversation to be had about, you know, the merits of AI art, where things are going to go from here. I think there's going to be legitimate... Um, artists that are career artists that are AI artists and there's going to be AI art galleries you know it, it, it's going to be this whole big thing and it's just going to get bigger and bigger and the AI is only going to get better and better I have a lot of questions about where this AI came from I have a lot of questions about censorship and you know um, the ability to make certain types of art so as you probably know you know there's keywords that you cannot use with mid-journey you know, and so what does that mean moving forward, you know, when you're creating artwork and whatever? Yeah, exactly right. 100%. I saw that too. <laughs> who who brought who brought a gun to a knife fight? Who brought a knife to a gunfight? It's like, of course it's going to win. I mean, dude, look at that. So you can essentially right. hire somebody to redefine whatever the, the AI generates for you. And this guy won first place at... State Fair, artist Jason Allen plays first in a Colorado contest, generating debate about AI's role in art. So that's what you're saying. Where are we going to go from here? And I don't see it getting any any better. Because, <laughs> yeah, dude, no. what is... <sighs> it makes no sense to me. Right, right. So it's a fascinating tool, and I have actually held off on getting a paid subscription um, I think I will at some point and I'm excited to play around with it and see how it can help my design projects, you know, come up with comps or come up with compositions or even colors or whatever, you know, um, but it is here and people should probably get used to it. My question is, dude, you know, one of my big questions with it is if we have this ability to create amazing AI art from our cell phone using Discord, how long has this really been around for and what uses <laughs> has it been used for? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's just kind of like, you know, these alphabet agencies, these various militaries or Royal families or whatever, how long have they had this tool at their disposal and how long have we been seeing AI arts, you know, in the media? 
as an example. And they tell us this is a real photo, but it's just AI art. And so it brings up all sorts of different questions for me. So I, uh, I'm conflicted with it on a few different levels, but every time I see it, I just have to give props to whoever programmed this thing or however it works, because it's some of the stuff is absolutely stunning and fascinating. Um, the other thing you mentioned, right, was the fashion designer who had all of these books. I would love to know who that was. That's just kind of an interesting thread for me. So that's kind of curious, but I just want to say that there have been several people who have reached out to me from the quote unquote fashion industry. And they say that they follow my work for inspiration and they've reached out to do various types of collaborations and stuff. And one of the people I've talked to from this industry basically said that their big realization when it came to high end fashion was that these fashion designers and these design houses that have been around for a long time, you know, and we, it's not necessarily my world. I don't think it's your world, but you know, uh, this industry has a huge, huge influence over pop culture and things like that. And a lot of people who have a lot of money and influence, you know, follow the fashion industry. But what this person said was one of their realizations was that the reason why some of these design houses are so popular and have staying power is because of their understanding of symbolism and mythology and occultism and magic. And so that's why they reached out to me because they think that I can help them um, in some regard with all that. Okay. So Carl Lagerfeld. (laughs) You're doing the the devil's work, bro. (laughs) Hey, but whatever pays the bills, right? (laughs) Well, you know, what's really interesting though, this prompted me to actually watch some runway shows that i had not seen this isn't my world necessarily and i just have to say that there is a sound merit there is um, a good reason why fashion exists and some of these runway shows blew me away in terms of how they were portraying the goddess and so there is high-end fashion that i think is legitimate art just like any other medium and then there is high-end fashion that i think is fairly despicable and does not appeal to me so there's kind of this spectrum of fashion out there and over the last couple of months i've actually just grown to appreciate it a bit more than what i used to because it's uh it's basically just like any other medium and i really think that they're putting the goddess on full display and there's lots of archetypal symbolism Uh, baked into some of the things that they're doing and i can't speak on behalf of the whole industry or whatever i'm not that schooled or knowledgeable with it but there's a few um, design houses that i've looked into that uh, i thought were very very interesting okay so he's a chanel guy so he to talk about this guy apparently he has had he's dead now sixty thousand books making it one of the largest private collections in the world wow and it's in his apartment. He had all this. I guess I guess this is a picture. Yes, as uh, Carl Lagerfeld's private library. And then he was the creative director of the French fashion house Chanel. And I thought I saw uh, something else in your mind. Yeah, it was Chanel. And there he is, or was. He died at eighty-five in France. And he was he worked with Fendi, Chanel, mm. and I guess he had his own label, Carl Lagerfeld. But that guy looks like a lizard, so he probably was a lizard. <laughs> and 
yeah, that's it's this guy. But it's all about we go back to the tarot, right? They like to invoke these archetypes. They want yep. to be able to because they invoke the archetypes in order to access that subconscious. And we go back to Plato that talked about how these archetypes are there. Carl Jung, these archetypes are there. And I like what Plato says about knowledge. He says, we're remembering, we're not learning, we're remembering because we already know everything that there is to know. You just need to remember. You need to be able to tap into that because at one point we knew it all and we got disconnected from the source somewhere or another, if that's the placenta or whatever that may be. Cause they say that kids are known, they're born knowing all the secrets to life and they at one point forget it. Mm -hmm. Well, do we really truly know? Because I mean, a kid can't talk, he can't communicate efficiently. So who knows what's going on in their little brains and what connections that they're making. Maybe they do know the secret to life or reality existence. And right. Right. Because at one point they, they forget it. And once they are able to communicate efficiently, they just don't know what to tell you. And I've always wondered because they're the closest to the source essentially when it, when a child is born and that's why they're used the way that they're used in certain surroundings, you know, uh, certain, uh, how do I say this? Certain places, you know what I'm getting at, right? That they, that they're, the oh, sure. you know oh, yeah. the, the, that's the whole QAnon thing and all this stuff that they use children etc cetera, etc cetera. sure but yeah i think it's yeah it's, there's something to that there's something to it exactly absolutely yeah 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 definitely even um just the other day i saw some kids skating online not in person and this i don't know how young he was he was really 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 young though he was a little guy and some of what he was pulling off was freaking incredible i was blown away and so people are thinking that this kid has a really bright future with skating and i'm not even that big of a skateboarder but i could tell there was a discernible difference with what he's doing and what most people are able to do and it got me thinking about being a child and if you have something like that in your life just how much easier i would imagine it would be to tap into your own flow state you know it's when you become an adult and it's when you know life has kind of been beaten out of you in a lot of ways and it's when you have bills and taxes and relationships and you know all of these different obligations and everything um it's when your conscious mind really takes over um i think that it's more difficult you have to try harder to enter that flow state but i think when you're a child i think it's just it comes to you a lot more naturally you don't have any obligations yet to the world and so if you want to spend all day skating and perfecting these tricks or whatever you can uh, but yeah, no, definitely. Children have uh, a radiance to them. They have a glow to them. You know, there's this spiritual quality that is uh, undeniable, which is why people consider them why, you know, um, it's been said that children, the first fruit as like a sacrifice is so potent and powerful is because they have this energetic quality to them. You said it, not me. So. Versus an old man, <laughs> you know, yeah. or whatever. An older person, you know, they just don't have that. So. And before we move on, because the next topic that we're going to be talking about does concern the children. And I wanted to bring up, you talking, you talked about there, whenever there's a tube, there's a hole. 
and I mean that's the phallus whatever who gives a shit but I found it very interesting because right the North Pole can be looked at as a blowhole of some sorts and do you know off the top of your head which constellations the ducks in the pyramid of Giza are pointing towards because I know they're aligned with a certain constellation do you know that off the top of your head are you referring to them looking like Orion's belt? I don't know where the ducks are pointed. Um, I no, could have sworn they were because uh, I was always taught that the ducks, you know which ones I'm talking about, the ones that go up, and I'll pull it up yeah. in a second. Mm-hmm. It was for yeah. the king's soul, the pharaoh's soul to, tr- the, to transverse up into mm-hmm. wherever. But obviously they've never been used as tombs, so that narrative falls flat on his face. But it is aligned with Orion's bow, right? They look like Orion's belt. So I don't know what the ducks are pointing to. I'd be curious to know what that is. But yeah, no, they're uh, the pattern that they make. The, those three pyramids look exactly like uh, Orion's belt. The three stars of Orion's belt. So the ducks I'm talking All about right. is yep. these ducks. Apparently, I thought I could have swore they were pointed somewhere. I'm sure they are. <laughs> I just don't know don't know where but yeah, yeah I'm, uh you're probably right anyways i've also heard the idea speaking on blowholes that these sort of megalithic structures are a sort of squirt gun for the soul and the reason i say that is because i've had a friend of mine and i'm planning on going to egypt in 2023 mm. at the beginning of 2023 nice so hopefully sweet Hopefully I don't talk about it too much and that goes through, but I'm going to be going with somebody who has a lot of experience going there. And this is where I'm getting the story from. But he's told me that he's laid down in the box that's at the, there's a box in one of these, either the queen's chamber or king's chamber. I always get them mixed up, but there's a box. There's a Mm -hmm. granite box. And Mm -hmm. he's told me he's laid in there and they don't allow you to chant while you're in the, the pyramid. Yeah. But the group that he had was private enough that they all started to hum a certain tone. And if you look at magical rituals, breath work and tones play a big role into the ability to be able to manifest. So I've read. And when they started to chant this tone and they were all together, his group, hum or whatever the hell they were doing. He, he laid down in the chain in the box and he said that the vibrations within that box got so intense that he could feel the, the resonance, the vibration of the box around him. It got so intense that he needed to get out. So I believe that these structures like this, like the Great Pyramid of Giza or any megalithic structure, I think it's used for a literal what's on Baphomet's forms, coagulate and dissolve, right? Mm. I think that they were able to literally dissolve into the ether at a certain time of day, certain time Mm. of the year, certain time during a ritual, whatever it was, and literally shoot up. So the, the, the building itself is almost like a squirt gun for the soul the essence, whatever that may be, into another higher state of being. And I think that accounts for 
Where did the Egyptians go? They can't tell us. They say, oh, well, the Hyksos took them over. Did they really? Who were the Hyksos? Mm. Oh, nomadic people. They were very powerful at one point. Sure. So you're telling me one of the greatest civilizations of all fucking time got taken over by a nomadic tribe that just happened to come through? No, maybe as a people, they were able to tap into something. Mohenjo-Daro, the Mayans, the Egyptians, you name it, any major civilization that disappeared. Well, they disappeared. Mm. Well, did they really? Did they really disappear? Or were they able to tap into some elemental technology, as I've heard my friend Ryan Burns put it, where if you align certain rocks in a certain pattern, you're able to tap into some higher power. And I think think that's what happened to these people. I think they were able to tap into as a people, as a whole, and resonate at the same frequency and able to just peace out. Maybe through the North Pole, but who the fuck knows? Yeah, exactly. I was wondering if maybe it was pointing north. Um, That's very, very interesting. Also pointing east would be kind of curious too, I think, for a few different reasons. Because I do have an Egyptian book. It's called... um, Actually, what the fuck is it called? Judy K. King wrote it. Isis Thesis. And she makes the case that she decoded a lot of hieroglyphs and decoded the afterlife process in a new way, I guess. And she said that their instructions were that upon death you actually go east but you actually spiral towards the north upon going east and so it's interesting when i look at some masonic tracing boards they like to put the directions right there you know on the side of the piece you know and so i'm like thinking about these masonic tracing boards and i'm thinking about the tarot as well and i'm like are all of these different mystery schools and lodges and stuff is it a lot about death how to die properly, etc. you know? And so to me, that actually makes sense. I think the tarot actually might be a uh, book, the major arcana specifically. It's like a, um, it's about life and death, essentially, you know, it's how to live and how to die. And so I think there actually might be a lot of death afterlife, uh, stairway to heaven symbolism that has yet to be decoded. And that's something that I'm kind of working on uh, personally. But what I was going to say, though, I could see this being the case and I could see that maybe it would require I don't know if you've come across anything like this, but like a specific diet as an example, like, you know, if you just enter this chamber and start humming or whatever, that unless you had a very specific diet and maybe even too, if you just were living haphazardly and you weren't taking care of yourself, you know, if you weren't following specific protocols, I could see it not working. But I could see it that, you know, if you're anointed or if you had a diet, specific diet, or if you were praying a certain kind of way, or if you went through a certain kind of system or whatever, that there's protocols basically that might come with that. And I've heard James True talk about this with the Holy of Holies, um, with Solomon's Temple. And I think that's largely mythology anyway. I don't know if there was a real Solomon's Temple. Some people would think that that's kind of nuts, but there's reason to suggest that Solomon's Temple actually might be purely mythological and that the first or second temple never existed and the third one's never going to get built. That That's kind of a whole separate rabbit hole. But I do think it's interesting that the Holy of Holies is a space within a space within a space within a space, but that only specific priests specific people that had very particular diets and lived a certain kind of way could actually enter into that space properly and if you weren't living that way then you're going to get nothing out of it essentially 
that we're dealing with such subtle energy that, you know, uh, your different bodies, your light body, emotional body, spiritual body, etc., need to be tuned a certain kind of way in order to take advantage of what's going on there. So I could definitely see something like that going on. Um, that's really fascinating. And I hope you get a go, dude, in 2023. That's awesome. Yes, we're shooting for that. My friend's finishing up a documentary that he has. And hopefully nice. I can tag along because he has he has all the connections. And I'm trying to find here. Unfortunately, it is a Crowley book. And it was talking about just that, how you need to be able to purify yourself and anything. Yep. I can't find it. Anyways, it's it's in the magic and theory and practice somewhere. And I was the reason I was looking through it is because it connects to the research I was doing today. But essentially, yeah, that's why the Pythagoreans didn't eat beans, right? They believed that beans oh. looked like a fetus and anything that resembled they were they were strictly I don't know I, I don't know if they were the I think the Cathars were the pescatarians, but they were strictly vegetarians and they wouldn't eat anything because they believe in metempsychosis, which is the soul travels to you could be an animal, you could be a plant, or you could be anything else. So they wouldn't eat meat because they could essentially be eating one of their brothers at one point in time. Or or they didn't mistreat animals because so the the diet a hundred percent has to be he said don't eat meat because it clouds judgment and all these things and people who are in the court system judges shouldn't eat meat because it clouds the judgment and all these things and the transference mm. of energies so that is i think that plays a big role purification plays a huge role when it comes into these sort of things and it would make sense right the t how you're saying the the <clears throat> excuse me this temple of solomon was a temple within a temple within a temple <laughs> It was a prayer room and within a prayer room within a prayer room. So there was level. There's literally levels to this shit. When the angels were talking to John D, they were telling him like, listen, you got to be clean. You got to wear the tetragrammaton on your chest or whatever that plate was. You got to wear this certain yeah. ring and you got to smell a certain way because fragrance is a big thing for the spirits. They fucking hate the smell of man. They can't stand the smell of sweat. So like, you got to smell good. If not, you're going to piss us off. So they're doing all these, they're praying, they're doing everything. And that's what a lot of people don't understand about John D. They were, it was surrounded with hours upon hours upon hours of prayer and meditation before doing these seances that they were doing for up to 10 hours a day, bro. You know, their kids are running yeah. around the house and they're doing, say they're trying to talk to angels or whatever the fuck it was. So what I was going to actually talk to you about was, before I went into this whole long convoluted rabbit hole that we're in right now has to do with John D and the North mm. pole symbolism where there is at one point in time where the angels reveal to John D and Edward Kelly, they show, they show them God. And I think I talked to you about this before they show them God and God wasn't your typical Saturnian old man, father time, sitting on a throne in heaven. No, he was a whale covered in many eyes, covered in a lot of eyes. Wow. So let me pull up my rendition because I had an artist make this for me. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I had an artist make That's this awesome, for me. Dude. And I had a crazy, crazy synchronicity when it came to this this piece here so there is my john d whale interpretation nice. 
and it's the cool. the whale with a bunch of eyes on it. So they were revealed mm. God, and he was this sort of cosmic whale. And the whale opens its mouth, and John D. and Edward Kelly are to go inside of the mouth of the whale. And inside the mouth of the whale, 12 gates open, either 12 or 4 gates open. So essentially the inside of this whale's wow. mouth is peeling back the layers of reality and they're being shown this in this vision and it goes it made me think of is the all the multiple eyes and the blowhole of the of the of the the whale sort of like if you're looking up at the north pole and you're having a either psychedelic experience or how those sufis what they spin around right in this trans like state yeah. What if they're mm -hmm. actually seeing and having a psychedelic experience where they were looking up to the stars and those were all the eyes and they couldn't find a way to describe it. But yet again, they weren't taking any drugs allegedly and they were in a room. Right. Crystal ball. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. I'm so glad you brought this up. What are your thoughts on that? It is that? absolutely fascinating. Well, a few things come to mind. One of them um, is that I think it's interesting that whale, a whale with eyes. I don't know if I understood or heard the uh, being covered in eyes bit. That that adds a new layer, you know, to things. But they say that biblically accurate angels are wheels with eyes. Mm -hmm. So I'm just thinking about wheels with eyes and a whale. <laughs> with eyes right mm -hmm. and just kind of the etymology and the similarities between those two words he was very adamant um, though they, they said that when they oh, were I'm shown sure. the essence it was a whale and the whale opened its mouth so sure a wheel can't open its mouth or can't i mean can i mean if it's like a dyson sphere looking thing. oh no no yeah so who Absolutely. knows but it's really trippy For to sure. think about the other thing i think about is how the whale would be the symbolic king or god of the ocean you know, I mean, what there's no other animal that's larger. I don't know if there's other animals that can be older than a whale or what that looks like. But, you know, if the heavens where the stars are beyond the firmament, potentially, if that's water, you know, the water is above and the water is below. I could see why the whale would be like the perfect correspondence for a god, you know. And so I also think about just how much symbolism is tied to water and how it relates to us and the spiritual quality of water. And, you know, part of me thinks that when we're talking about spirit or ether, we're actually talking about another emanation of water and that water has several states as is that most of us are familiar with, you know, uh, the solid liquid, etc. But I think maybe potentially its highest aspect is what we call spirit or ether. And so there's so much symbolic overlap with uh, water being in the sky and the waters that we have in the ocean. It's completely insane. And, you know, we were talking or you briefly brought up, you know, sci-fi and stuff earlier. But it's like, where do we get weightlessness from? You know, uh, what, what's what's the deal behind the weightlessness um, that we see in films uh, going to outer space and stuff? You know, the fact that uh, an astronaut or whatever needs to be corded to the space ship. They're both ships, right? That traverse. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so there's just a lot of things going on with, with the heavens, with water and space and everything else. So to me, that's really fascinating. Um, and then would you say 12, uh, 12 gates within the uh, whale? I have to look it up again, but it was either, it was either 12 or four, uh, gates that opened up within the mouth and I can, it's a book from 1650. So I have to look, look at it again. I like to go directly to a lot of source source material and read it and it's a pain in the ass sometimes sure. but yeah it's uh, either no, that's 12, awesome 12 that kind of work. Yeah 12 or 4 gates I forgot but th- those are symbol- both symbolic numbers I mean 12 100% <laughs> and the number 4 is the formation creator yeah yeah exactly so four would be you know uh, the four corners of the earth the four cardinal directions the four fixed signs you know but there's a completion there with the number four and so the quartered circle you take a circle divided by four you know these would be the four seasons or whatever and then also the 12 clearly uh the zodiac you know the 12 signs of astrology and then if it was if god was a whale you know um i look at god as occupying you know the northern sky and this is what all of the stars revolve around. So in a way, symbolically, he's in the middle of the zodiacal wheel, essentially. Uh, the other thing I was going to mention, it's really fascinating, but you know the nar? Is it the narwhal or the narwhale? The one that has a horn? I think it's a narwhale, but I'll it look isn't... it up. Yeah, so the narwhale um, has this horn protruding from its head. And this used to be the horn that narwhal, maybe. Right. So this horn, they tried to, and many times they were successful, but this would pass off as being a unicorn horn. So people would take this horn and say that it was actually a unicorn horn, but this horn itself is very much symbolically related to the Axis Mundi, you know, to this world column or pillar, you know, and I made a video about this uh, during cancer relating the unicorn's horn to um, being an Axis Mundi symbol. So I think that's kind of curious too. Just something that I would throw out there. What a but what a weird looking, looking creature, man. I know, it's so strange. What a it like, doesn't ass. make sense. <laughs> what a trippy ass animal, man. You know, this is what blows my mind that people like Elon Musk want to go to Mars and stuff when there are literal aliens in our water, in our, in our <laughs> oceans. I mean, look at this thing. The thing is an alien. It's crazy looking, dude. Yeah, 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 absolutely, for sure. But I really, really love that info that you pulled up because my information, when I read a book about John Dee, it was called uh, John Dee and the Temple of Angels or something to that effect. And uh, they said that when he met God and when God was revealed to him that it was actually a child. And so Mm -hmm. that was kind of like the twist or whatever. Mm -hmm. And maybe he got his information wrong or it was mistranslated or something like that. I don't know. Um, yeah, the, but that's what I heard. The book that, and I'll show it to you here for source material. The book that, and I'll send you a copy actually. Oh yeah, that'd be awesome. But the book that is responsible for this, and and this this guy Merrick Casabon, he actually published. So he found a lot of these old manuscripts after he had passed on, and he published it in order to discredit John D and Edward Kelly. Cause you know, at the time they were, uh, you know, talking to demons, et cetera, et cetera. So the name of the book is a true and faithful relation of what path 
again, th this is why I don't like reading these books. Pathed for many years between Dr. John D, a mathematician of great fame, and the Queen Elizabeth and King James of their reigns, and some spirits tending how to... It's so this long, convoluted title, but this guy, Merrick Casabon, and he it was published in 1659, and he found a lot of John D's work buried, and there was another guy who found John D's work in an old, hollowed-out drawer of... That used to be John D's and it was sold at auction and a doctor bought it. They kept it in their house when they were moving one day. They heard something rattling around inside of the, and they have Roger Bacon here, a pulling of Tiana for some reason. And uh, they, they were moving this furniture and they heard like a, a false bottom. They're like, what is this? And when they opened it up, it was a bunch of old manuscripts of the seances. And for those that don't know, after the fact there were actually longer seances with a Bartholomew Hickman, I believe it was him. There was two. There was a Bartholomew Hickson, Hick, Hickman and a Barnabas Saul. Barnabas Saul was the first seancer that he had. And Bartholomew Hickman was the one after John D. Had, uh, Edward Kelly had died. And they actually went on for about eight or nine years of seances that were all destroyed and lost. So we don't know what happened after the fact. There was there could have been a lot more that Edward Kelly and uh, the, uh, that John D and this other uh, seer scryer that we don't know about because it was all. So essentially, this is all. This is how it's written, and and it starts. It gets into a preface, and then it gets into his journals, his magical journals, and. So you see how tiny this shit is. You see how crazy, you know, the, the language is different because it's from 1659. But this is where the whale comes up. And I'll have to, I don't know if I can search for it. I'm using a new thing, but I'll find the passage and I'll send it over to you. But essentially when they're shown God, he is a whale with many eyes. And I found that super trippy because that's like the, the, a great comic concept. <laughs> You know, a whale with a bunch of eyes? How trippy is that? It's sci-fi as fuck. Oh, yeah. No, there's something about it that really resonates. And what it reminds me of is during Capricorn season, I made a video about this, but a lot of older cultures, their original devil was actually, and their original hell was underwater. And that the devil was equated to some sort of sea monster, basically. And so this idea of the devil with goat legs and horns and wings, and it's more like a Baphomet, Baphomet sort of thing. Um, that's more of a recent concept. And what I'm realizing is that all the groups had their concept of a devil actually coming out from under the water. And so in a way, it kind of reminds me of like Cthulhu or something like that. And that their idea of hell was actually underwater as well. It wasn't underneath the earth. And so I think if you were to go back, a lot of older myths... And, um, you know, their uh, different archetypal symbols and whatnot were actually underwater. And so the idea of God being a sea creature, especially something like a whale, to me, I mean, it, it does make sense. It, it adds up. And then back to your portal thing, you know, it's almost like the whale is a, uh, a moving, living portal in and of itself. Because there's a number of stories of being, people being uh, eaten you know, by a whale and then going through this huge, massive journey or being in the whale for several days 
before they're able to exit or whatever. So to me, it's that's an initiation. Kind of it's an initiation, essentially. Yeah, sure. Like Jonah and the whale yep. being in the mouth of the whale. It is an, an initiation. And this stuff is really hard to read, but here we go. We have the prophet, the prophet took them up for they were become as dead. So Edward Kelly and John D were dead. And suddenly the firmament and the waters were joined together and the whale came like unto a legion of storms or as the bottomless cave of the north of the north. There's the north symbolism there again. When it opened and it was full of eyes of every side, the prophet said, stand still, but they trembled. The waters sank and fell suddenly away for that the whale lay upon the hill roaring like a cave of lions. So it's saying... They're, they're hearing the mouth of the whale like a, like a cave of lions. That's kind of interesting to say. And the prophet took them by the hand and led them to the whale's mouth saying, Go in, but they trembled. Uh, See, I can't even read that shit. Vehemently? I don't even know what word that is. He said unto them the second time, Go in, and they something, and they swore unto them, and they entered in and be lifted up this by his voice and cried mightily, come away anyways you get the point but they go inside this whale's mouth so here's the whale's mouth so this guy is is leaving notes as well as he's writing it and essentially everything looks like this let me zoom out a little bit and i haven't read this in a very long time but all the writing looks like this bro so i'm literally spending hours at night reading shit like this so ek is edward kelly the triangle is John D because that's how he wrote his manuscripts because every everything back then was about aligning yourself to God and the triangle was the Trinity and John D Eon D lines up numerically to a certain sum that's equal to what they believe was God and mind you John D was a guy in bed with this the the same people you know William Shakespeare uh and we know that the, the whole Baconian code and all this stuff and all these ciphers that they were all about. So he was in bed. Allegedly, John D helped put all these codes in William Shakespeare's work. That's the whole conspiracy. And the reason that William Shakespeare knew about the occult was because there's these people, there's these brothers called the Garland brothers, which is related to the Rosicrucians and all this stuff that they say was William Shakespeare and some other guy under a pseudonym because William Shakespeare was also a spy for the crown. And that accounts for the missing years of William Shakespeare's life. Cause William Shakespeare disappeared for like 10 years while he was hanging out with John D and Edward Kelly at these seances. And that's why in his plays, he knows about the occult. He knows about the Faustian pact and all these things. So Tempest is modeled after John D. So there's this crazy conspiracy in rabbit hole, but essentially I'll sit and I, and I like to read these the source material. <laughs> so see, they're here. Edward Kelly, amen. And they're taking notes of everything, bro. And you can see, and I'll send you this so you can look at it. But it's from 1650. And this is Merrick Casabon. And I was able to find that other thing on Crowley when he talked about cleanliness is next to godliness and had better come first. Purity means singleness. And he's talking about how you must prepare with your diet and everything in order to be able to do these rituals. 
And if you're not, if you don't come correct in your circle, you're going to not have a good time. <laughs> right, right. Dude, this is really powerful stuff, if I'm being honest. I love that you came across this. Uh, I personally had never heard of it before, but this adds a whole another layer to whole things, layer, in bro. my opinion. Mm-hmm. And it makes perfect sense, actually. And so uh, the fact that they reference the bottomless cave of the North to me is really fascinating. Um, we associate bears with caves a lot of times, you know, and so I think that this is what Ursa Major and Minor um, in part are referencing our caves yeah. uh, or the bears within a cave, essentially, and the firmament would be the cave. Also, the fact that it mentioned the waters above and below joining, um, to me, this implies a flood. And the flood, actually the great flood, has a lot to do with Aquarius, right? The water bearer. Mm. And so the, where Aquarius is in the night sky, there is a, a lot of oceanic watery creatures right around her. And so just before Aquarius on the ecliptic, um, the wheel of the Zodiac, just before Aquarius is Capricorn, which is the sea goat. And just after Aquarius is Pisces, the fish. And so just those three signs in a row, there's watery connotations with all of them. And then if you get outside of the Zodiac, there's a whale constellation, there's like other fish, you know, so there's all of these watery constellations. And what they say is that the water bearer Aquarius provides water for either the entire night sky, for the entire um, entirety of the firmament or the heavens or just to that portion of the night sky, those constellations, right? And Aquarius is opposite Leo. So I thought it was interesting that they referred to, was it the uh, roaring of the water as, uh, you know, as lions roaring? You know, that was the metaphor that they equated. When it opened its mouth, it sounded like... That's really interesting. Cave of lions. Gotcha. When the whale was opening its mouth? Yeah, when the whale, it roared like a cave of lions. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah, because Aquarius is right across from Leo. So there's actually a lot of like Leo feline cat symbolism that overlaps with water. And so that's something that I've kind of been exploring lately because we just went through Leo and you see all of these old fountains and it's like a lion and water's coming out of its mouth or what have you. And they've been associated with different waterways and rivers and things like that for a while. Um, so I don't know. I thought that was kind of curious, but this whole entire thread, dude, um, this is very, very intriguing and interesting. I'm really glad you're bringing it to the table. It brings a whole new light. I mean, I've never heard about that until I started digging painstakingly through everything. Cause essentially he had five different magical books and they end abruptly. And this guy picks up where those other ones left off and that continues in mm. this book. So it's a bunch of, it's over 10 books that you're looking at, you know, like a bunch of different books. And it's not after till after they die that this becomes available and you see the chronology because they dated everything and it continues. He wants, you know, he went MIA for a little bit. And then after that, I picked up because this guy found his old manuscripts. If he would have never found it, we would have never had this information. And who knows if he's talking in, in a cipher because John D right. was known for cryptography he was a cryptographer and he they they would mask everything a certain way so he might essentially be talking about some sort of astrological code that we won't ever know because it was written 
in code that only a certain amount of people knew or whatever the case may be. So what you're saying about all these different signs, he was into astro astrology, bro. He was the court astrologer for Queen Elizabeth. So he could have 100% <laughs> yeah. been talking about some sort of astrological concept that we don't that I don't understand. So I'll send you that so you can dig right. into that and see what else you can find, but it's very interesting. And finally to get to where I wanted to go after <laughs> going through all that <laughs> Talking about John D. Crowley, all these guys, Wales, North Pole, is the concept that for the longest time the other day, I was sitting down and I was remembering, I go, how trippy was Dr. Seuss? The books of Dr. Seuss. And bringing it back to the children, I go, there's got to be some funky shit going on with Dr. Seuss. So I was in Sam's Club the other day and I picked this up was on special and I bought it for my son and it's all oh, the places you'll go and come to find out this was the last public the published book that was published by Dr. Seuss who wasn't actually a doctor <laughs> and it was his last publication by a very shady group of people a mm. corporation random house so Random House, and now it's known as, I believe, Random Penguin House or Penguin Random House, something like that, which is weird, too. Mm. They were bought a bunch of times. But essentially, this company is was founded, I, I think, in the 1800s. I have it pulled up here in a, in somewhere. They were founded a very long time ago, and they were up there with the Rockefellers. Uh, Dr. Seuss, Theodore Seuss Gazel, I think that's how you say it. He was born in 1904 and died in 1991. He was an American children's author and cartoonist. And he is known for more than 60 books. And he wrote under the pen name Dr. Seuss. He wasn't actually a doctor. But he made a name for himself in Stan with Standard Oil. He was right. He was drawing advertisements for them. Standard Oil, which oh. is Rockefeller. Mm -hmm. He was doing literally the same let me see if I have it pulled up here. The same drawings that we see in the children's books, but for Standard Oil. And I don't have it pulled up. Actually, I do. Let me pull it up here. Interesting. Yeah. So he was in bed with these lizard type people. And he was drawing things like this for Standard Oil. Uh, this I don't believe this was for Standard Oil, but uh, he did do a lot of propaganda as well. And he was doing weird shit like this which we'll get mm. to. But if you look at his art, it's very trippy. Very weird. Yeah. And I'm, again, mm. a sucker for sci-fi. So this idea of being able to transverse reality and go to a different place, even here we have the labyrinth, if you really want to look at it, and the concept of the labyrinth. And yeah. the story behind the creation of the labyrinth from the Greek perspective, from the Hellenistic perspective, with Daedalus and wanting to trap the Minotaur, that has a symbolic meaning to it. And yeah. last night I was into some really intriguing stuff, which I'll pull up here. Because my research, I'm right now I'm balls deep in the into the architect as magician stuff. And I just I love that concept. And last night. I was I came across the Daedalus stuff, which coincidentally was in here when I started looking around. 
and Daidala or art objects can appear to be what they are not. And the metal plates give a value to the objects that they would not otherwise have. And Daidala comes from Daidalus, which was the divine mm. architect, the, this mythological architect. He was a magician. He created the, the, the labyrinth to contain the minotaur and the, the monstrosity. So that could be symbolic for a bunch of different things. And the principal value of Daidala is that of enabling the inanimate matter to become magically alive, of reproducing life rather than representing it. Hence, the word also designates Thaumata. Marvelous animated machines with brilliant suits of armor and scintillating eyes. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Scintillating mm. eyes. So uh, the way it's, I guess, glowing eyes, right? I'll look that up. Don't fucking crucify me. And the more primitive Homeric texts emphasize the ability of the Daidala to seem alive. And that was really, I found that weird. I go, that, why does that sound so familiar? An animated armor. Well, what's an animated armor? And this mm. is a conversation between me and Gabe. But other than Transformers, <laughs> right? Because right. we did the alchemical yeah, deciphering yeah. of the Transformers, and I had sent the him that last night. Because there's more than meets the eye. So mm -hmm. the idea of a full metal alchemist being mm -hmm. the Transformers that they're literally transmuting reality, and, you know, fiction into reality, comes from Greek thought, Daedalus, and. Right. Thalmata, you can also automata, which are robots, animated beings, right? So mm -hmm. you have the labyrinth here, and as I'm flipping through it, and then and then the 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 name of it, all the places you'll go. Interesting. And it just happened to be when he died. Where's he going? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where's he going? You have a lot of weird warping architecture. And then you have the first one. I consider that an alchemical dragon. That's like a, a dragon looking thing. It's a green dragon. And we know that in alchemy, mm -hmm. it's pretty much a picture book that has a bunch right. of words. That's right. really weird. And so I'm flipping through. I was like, oh, it's a children's book. We got the labyrinth one. We know the symbolism. And then I thought about the chariot when I saw this. Because I know you talked about the, oh, four, yeah. the, yep. the canopy of the four things around it. Then you have a sure. castle. I want in there. And they're traveling. They're yep. traveling. Yeah. So there's that. There's this. This weird trippy mm. thing. So the more I look into my like, okay, and then the way that they illustrate thing here, we have an archway, a portal of some sorts, maybe. Mm. Mm -hmm. Just really right. weird architecture that flows and it's almost like out of the movie what's that one movie, Deception, where it's a dream within a dream. Is that the name of the movie? Deception with Leonardo DiCaprio? Oh, yeah. Inception. Inception. Yeah. Inception. So we have yeah. this. We have a lot of weird imagery in here. So you know me. I'm just digging away and looking at this. And then we have 50, 100, and the number 13 out of nowhere, which is really weird. And I start to look around. And, of course, there is a connection. And this look, this to me looks like a sigil I've seen somewhere before, but I can't put my eyes on it. I can't put my mm, finger on mm. it, but that top there looks like something, sure. something I've seen before. Anyways, so okay. yeah. I, start, I start to go down this rabbit hole of Dr. Seuss. 
find out he was in bed with Rockefeller. Rockefeller Foundation. One of his biggest checks was from Standard Oil. He was doing propaganda art in World War II. He had an affair. I think his wife killed herself because she found out that he had left her for a younger woman. Okay. We have yeah. the Random House connection, which they're this the one of the biggest conglomerates ever. They they are the family ranks 147 the top 200 richest families ever, and they're worth billions and billions of dollars, and they're German. And then I came across he had a a dark collection that only came to light after he had after he had died and this is a self-portrait this is how he saw himself apparently this is how dr seuss saw himself like this weird mm. creepy magician looking thing chimera i guess you could call it and there was a lot of art that was released after he had died this is part of his dark collection very mm. weird very weird stuff yeah. very dark it's it's you see the contrast of like the stuff that I showed you for the kids and then mm -hmm. this darker looking things that make it I don't know what that's supposed to be. This thing this was like an ethereal cat playing pool. Yeah. You have uh two, six, and nine in there. Uh, and then you have stairs, mm -hmm. so it's very weird. And dark. Look at this self-portrait of the artist worrying about his next book. This is how he's painting himself. He's seeing himself <laughs> as a, this yeah. morphed being. Right. And yeah. Right. As I look into it, the rhymes within the, the, the book, right. There's a certain, like, I am Sam and Sam. I am. Well, that goes even into a deeper rabbit hole. Apparently. And this is from, an article named a Kabbalistic interpretation of Dr. Seuss green eggs and ham by a Darren McGovern freighter cat and hat <laughs> motherfucker. Cat and hat. <laughs> so the most holy tree of the, of the eggs and ham. And it was inspired by a, in with an ex, uh, conversation with excluded middle editor, Greg Bishop about Aleister Crowley. And I looked him up and apparently he had a radio show or he has, and he's published a few books. I don't know if he's still around or not, but shout out to you, Greg. We're using this thing on your website. I found it very interesting. And it's linked to one of Crowley's books. I was like, what the fuck does Crowley have to do with nursery rhymes? Well, apparently Crowley wrote about nursery rhymes. Mm. And the Equinox, book four, part two, chapter seven. An interlude is the name of it. And I started looking into this and you see where my research leads me down these little corridors and it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And Crowley wrote about nursery rhymes, how they each contain profound magical, magical secrets, which are open to everyone who has made a study of the correspondences of the Holy Kabbalah with a Q. Cause you have to remember Kabbalah's CKQ. There's different interpretations of it. To mm -hmm. puzzle out an imaginary meaning for this nonsense sets one thinking of mysteries. Once one enters into deep contemplation of holy things and God himself leads the soul to the real illumination. 
Hence also the necessity of incarnation. The soul must descend into all falsity in order to attain all truth. And I'm going to do the first, I'm going to do the one that I found really interesting, which is the first one. And the second one's really cool. But you guys can check this out for yourselves. I'm not going to get too crazy into it. But it relates to Cat in the Hat because back to cryptography, it's not going to be black and white. This is why symbolic literacy is so important. This is why you need to follow symbolic studies on TikTok and Instagram to keep up with your symbolic studies. So the first one that he talks about, this is Crowley writing. For instance, old mother Hubbard went to her cupboard to get her poor dog a bone. Once she got there, the cupboard was bare. And so the poor dog had none. So Crowley breaks this down for us. And he goes, who is this ancient and venerable mother of whom it is spoken? Verily, she is none other than Benah, as is evident in the use of the holy letter H with which her name begins. Nor is she the sterile mother Ama, but the fertile Ima, Ama, for within her she bears vow the son for the second letter of her name and the R, the penultimate is the son, Tephoreth, the son. And, the, and again, I'm not too familiar with the Kabbalistic tree of life, so don't crucify me, please. And this is where it gets interesting. To other, to the other three letters of her name, B, A, and D are the three paths which join the three supernals. To what cupboard did she go? Even the most secret caverns of the universe. And who is this dog? Is it not the name of the God spelled Kabbalistically backwards? And what is this bone? The bone is the wand, the holy lingam. The complete interpretation of the rune is now open. The rhyme is the legend of the murder of Osiris by Typhon. The limbs of Osiris were scattered in the Nile. Isis sought them in every corner of the universe, and she found all except the sacred lingam. And hopefully I'm saying that right. Which was not found until quite recently. Let us take another. So he's talking about the, <laughs> the Osiris. Uh, the the myth of his body being scattered everywhere. And there's also another one with Set, right? Where his, bo- his brother cuts him, his body up, scatters all the pieces, and all of them are found except the phallus so that's the bone that she was trying right. to find for her dog and these go on bro these go on uh they they go on he, got, he talks about the <laughs> batsavatas and the buddhas and this goes on so i encourage people to check it's crowley fuck him but the dude's got a fucking point <laughs> he does yeah absolutely for sure i'm not surprised man you know uh with these stories they appear to be very simple but there's a lot going on. And so the cat in the hat was the first thing that you asked if I was interested in maybe decoding. And what I did was my process was watching this read along on like 2x speed on YouTube. And I watched this thing, man, probably over the last like two months or three months, like 20 times or something like that. And I was surprised with every watch, I got new information new details, new things to consider. And so there are many angles to approach that story as seemingly simple as it is. So the fact that Crowley took that approach, you know, I'm not surprised at all. There's a lot to decode. Yeah, I have the green eggs and ham decode, which I want to read, but these I'm showing the, the ads that he did for 
Standard Oil, Esso Lube, and these are so you see it's the characters that we're used to seeing in these children's books, except right. they are ads for Standard Oil. So it's the same gotcha. style. Mm-hmm. And then he not only did he do that, but he also did art for World War II mm. for uh, the government uh, propaganda. I see. And right. I want to read the Kabbalistic interpretation here of the Green Eggs and Ham because it's pretty quick. And I, and I was just I was laughing because I'm like, what? This is this is crazy. And this guy breaks it down really nice. So. I remember in the second grade being introduced to green eggs and ham. And I remember our teacher, rest in peace. She was a family friend and she died of cancer some years back. But she made us green eggs and ham. Literally green eggs and ham. And I, okay. I, that, that, that thought has been imprinted in my mind. So that's why when I, when I thought of Dr. Seuss, like, this is so trippy. Like it's like a, it's like a, she's having a, he's having a waking dream and I'll get into something mm. else later that I have too. So yeah, I am Sam. And, and, and he starts it off by saying, unlocking the imaginary hidden messages with a nonsense can automatically set one to thinking of the mysteries. This done with discipline can lead to deep contemplation of holy things and God himself. And that is the truth path. That is the true path to illumination. So we're talking about unlocking things in the psyche and being able to right, illuminate, become the Illuminati, the illuminated. And this can be done with any seemingly nonsensical text you, you may choose, Grimm's fa fairy tales, ancient Egyptian papyri, the Bible, the morning news, the source is unimportant. However, the method is difficult without the aid of the holy Kabbalah with a Q. For example, let's take the seemingly innocuous modern children's book, Green Eggs and Ham. By deciphering the meaning between the lines, the roots of words, the correspondence on the tree of life, and connections to myth, we can invoke the truth that lies hidden. As written in Hermes' emerald tablet in the mag. The Nag Hammadi, he put the Mag Hammadi, the Mag Hammadi, Nag Hammadi scriptures as above, so below. Distilling the information to extract the gold from the original matter is an alchemical transformation operation. So how I mentioned earlier, we are the philosopher's stone. We are the ones that intake something inanimate and output gold art. So we're, I'm taking all this information and we're making a podcast. This is the gold. This is the alchemical gold. Okay, so that's essentially what it is. I am Sam. This simple phrase is perhaps the most sublime. Sam can be seen as an abbreviation of the sacred Sanskrit mantra for Vedic literature. Soham, which means I am that. Thus, we have the Hebrew God name. Ahie, and I'm fucking these up. Or <laughs> I am that I am. Sam can also be seen as one of the root words for Samadhi which means together with Sam, the Lord, Adhi. Thus, we have together with I am. Either way, this is certainly Kether. And I'm sure you know these, these names because I don't know about the Kabbalistic tree of life. The uppermost Sephiroth, Sephiroth of, on the tree of life, complete unity. This blissful state is secretly betrayed by the repeating of it. Here also we have the appearance of a new character. He is the witness to the statement repeated. So it starts with, I am, I am Sam. And then it goes, I am Sam with a capital A on the am. Du dualism has been evoked and heaven will never be the same. The negative veils of existence have been shattered. Kether has given away to Chukma and Bina, the yin and yang of creation. There is nothing left but to look 
to where this new consciousness emanated and to speak what now appears in reverse. So I am Sam. I am Sam. Sam, I am. <laughs> like an inverted pentagram, the truth is, see, is seen improperly in in due to the faulty perspective of the viewer. Immediately, we see the second character resist. He states, that Sam, I am. That Sam, I am. I do not like that Sam, I am. Here we have it. The ego separates from the now higher self, Sam I am, <laughs> and begins to resent it, not realizing he is it. This resentment is the root of all human error, as Nietzsche so exactly examines in Will to Power. Yes, the original sin is committed. The observer poised himself separate from the observed, but the higher self is ready with a solution and offering a holy Eucharist. Do you like green eggs and ham? <laughs> <laughs> so this is the solution. This is the offering, right? He offers again. The ego resists. I do not like them, Sam. I am. In an act of compassion or perhaps some sort of Zen joke, the higher self asks, would you like them here or there? But it is, it is too late. The fall from grace has begun. Adam is banished from the garden by his inevitable inevitable refusal to cooperate but the higher self follows and asks would you like them in a house would you like them with a mouse here the ego has descended the malkuth and is presented to himself the mouse or moose which means ego in its small pathetic symbolic form yeah the ego resisteth would you like them in a box would you like them with a fox now the house has turned into a box and the ego a fox. So we're seeing these archetypes and this psychological aspect to, <laughs> to fucking green eggs and ham, bro. Where This sprouted from Crowley's work. So in typical reverse meaning, like the Chinese finger torture toy I used to get at the Cardinals, that would be tightened. The harder you would pull, the further the ego separates from the higher self, the more confined it becomes as represented by the box. And the more really the ego becomes at his, at his, as it is represented by the fox. And the fox has its own mm. interpretation as well. Yeah, the ego resisteth. Would you, could you, in a car, eat them? Eat them, here they are. Here they found themselves in a car. A car, symbolic of the body, has four wheels like the four elements. It is in motion like the swastika, which is a cross in motion. And yeah, the mm. ego resisteth. You may like them. You will see. You may like them in a tree. The car now drives up a tree, obviously the tree of life itself. And yeah, the ego resisteth. A train, a train, a train, a train. Could you, would you on a train? They rapidly fall from the tree to the train. Trains have forever been associated with, se with the sex act and verily they are sped off into a tunnel. Say in the dark, here in the dark, would you, could you in the dark? The chakra roller coaster ride continues. This ascent to darkness by means of the sexual act is familiar to all. It would be an insult to the reader for me to comment further. And he he goes on and on and he ends it with, let's see here. The ego. So say I like green eggs and ham. I do. I like them. Sam, I am. I would eat them in a boat and I would eat them with a goat, etc., etc. The ego realizes fighting his divine will is not only futile but giving it giving in is bliss right ignorance is bliss for his tormentor was himself his higher self his holy guardian angel the torment came from the ego's perception of being separate from the all 
But what are the green eggs and ham? Are they symbolic of fear of the unknown? Are they delicious rewards of selflessness? Or is the ham the forbidden fruit of bodily existence and the two eggs the symbolic of rebirth? Are they green for fertility and growth? After all, God's creation is creation and is meant to perpetuate itself by its own means. Maybe it is a cone, not meant to have one answer, but meant to inspire the seeker on his path. So I do so like green eggs and ham. Thank you. Thank you. Sam, I am. <laughs> you think this guy was reaching, bro? I like this. I like, I, and there's more to it. There's, all, there's a little bit more. Oh, it, dude. But I could listen to this all day, man. It's fucking Seriously. great, right? I'm like, this is, is amazing. Oh, yeah. oh, I think it's incredible. You know, it really highlights to me, and I think about this with the tarot quite a bit, and actually kind of the community that we're hooked up with online you and um you know slick and everything else and chance it's like when you perceive something when you watch a piece of media when you consume a piece of content it's like depending on your development and symbolic awareness you're going to get radically different things you know i think there might be some core or nugget that everyone takes away there might be an emotional response or whatever but it's like, this is just like proof of that. So, you know, someone, how many parents have read these books to their children and never contemplated any of this stuff? But then you take someone like Crowley, he reads it, and this is everything that he pulls away from that material, you know? And so when you guys do decodes and, you know, when people have that symbolic awareness on their side, the things that you get from the content, you know, can be just like, brilliant stuff and go really 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 deep and actually i would say too the simpler it is the simpler the archetypes are and even just the words that dr seuss uh, chose to use and just the various symbols that he tends to repeat i noticed that there's like lots of water too in some of his books and stuff i'm like okay well because we're dealing with really simple items and objects and things like that and words because obviously it's a children's book there's even more to take away from it i would say um and so yeah that's brilliant dude i would love to read more of this actually that's awesome that you found it yeah so, i was good I'll, work man i was surprised i found it too i'll send you the 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 post <laughs> yeah. and shout out to this guy right freighter cat in the hat cat in hat because he's an og for fucking coming up with this and these are the things i i like to really you know play around with and did you have any pictures of the I have some pictures here as well of oh I forgot to touch on one thing. So I've been playing around with the fact that and I don't know how much longer you have. You oh, could, I got time, dude. All right, just making sure because yeah. I know we 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 were gonna do an hour and a half, but obviously there's a lot to talk <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah. But this no idea, worries. I don't know if you've heard of the Mundus Imaginalis. Have you heard of that, about that? Mm-mm. No. It's a concept that uh, was come up with by I forgot his name uh anyways it's it was one of Carl Jung's associates and it's this imaginary world between the real you know reality and whatever this other side is right so I'm gonna read here I have to find the description of it I'll, I'll look for it here in a second but mm-hmm Keep that in mind. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. So Corbin coined the term Mundus Imaginalis, which is intended to encapsulate this, a world that is 
ontologically as real as the world of the senses and that of the intellect. So I've always talked about how everything is perception. Everything is the way you perceive things. And I think that our senses, that's the whole thing with Cartesian philosophy. I think therefore I am cogito or go some where the only thing that he could trust was himself. So I think therefore I am, I know I'm true. My senses can mm. be deceived, but I think I want, I like to take it a step further. And I like to believe that the people behind the scenes are able to literally warp our realities. And maybe this Mundus Imaginalis isn't a place that you could physically see or something. But what if whenever you go into a certain building, right? Let's, let's put an example. It's I like to, your soul or something, your essence is taken and transported to these certain places. Or maybe you are even able to go there with your own senses because that's what meditation is. That's what yoga is. That's what maybe DMT mm. is where you're able to see through the other side, the firmament. And I think that with a combination of architecture, with media, with everything, with frequencies, with 5G, with all that shit, I think they're able to do that. And I think that's what the original cathedrals were about. It was a technology that they had access to, an alchemical technology. That's what Falconelli talks about, that these cathedrals are alchemical in nature. And they were used to, I, and this has been said, they were used as picture books, back again to the, to the, to the primitive thing, right? For children, picture books for the lower class. So how you're saying, taking these archetypes and shrinking them down to the simplest form has the most effectiveness at times. So yeah, I think that's exactly. what I that's what I interpret magic as being able to think of things like this, where you, you're so you're telling me that the imaginary world is just as true as the real world. Well, that's what Plato was talking about with the theory of forms. That's what all these philosophers talked about right this higher state that's what jesus christ was preaching about right maybe it wasn't about when, when i was raised as a pentecostal christian it was oh you're gonna have a mansion of gold the streets are gonna be gold and i remember as a little kid bro asking my grandma like damn i'm gonna have a mansion <laughs> that's fucking golden right yeah 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 well when you come to to, to religion that to some people is the real thing that to people is right. the real world. They live their religion. They pray eight times a day or whatever it is and face a certain direction for X amount of time and they do whatever they need to do because they believe that at one point in time, this imaginary world, they're going to be eventually able to transport themselves there. Mm. And I think Dr. Seuss was giving us a peek. The All the places you'll go once you're able to learn to transverse reality or whatever the fuck it is. You know what I mean? That's why right. it's all, I think, again, a lot of it is psychological, but who knows? I love the idea of the hidden hyperspace kingdom where people sure. are able to go there through magical practices or whatever it may be in this mundus imaginalis. And I'm going to, it's all about the, I'm going to bring up this other article that I have and read you where it was Edward Kelly and John D participating in something just like this. So it's almost like a, like a group hallucination, if you will, where you're able to warp somebody else's reality as well. 
And we see this with identity politics where people warp each other's perceptions of reality. It's like, how can you believe in that? Well, my neighbor believes it or my wife believes it and I believe it too. It's like, right. so you, you have no yep. critical thinking of why you believe what you believe. Oh, my mom told me to do it. So I did it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you see, you see this rubbing off. It's, it's a contagion. It's sympathetic magic. Yeah. Things that are yep. in contact oh, yeah. will continue to be, it's quantum entanglement. That's why I believe a lot mm-hmm. of science is magic that they can't put a name on it. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. What do you think? No, man? I'm right there with you. Yeah. Yeah. No, makes sense. I mean, also just imagine what if you showed a dystopian future in a movie and then more movies and then more TV shows and in comic books, a broken and clock else. is right two times a day. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's true. You know, but if you keep on showing the dystopian future, if you keep on showing um, the world coming to an end, things like that, that is planting that seed, you know? And so people are going to basically um, that they're going to have that seed grow within their minds and within their hearts, you know? And so this is what propaganda is all about, you know, is just kind of like creating uh, these messages and allowing them to go viral and to spread you know, and you're basically creating reality that way. It's culture creation, you know, and I think that being imaginative and being creative and being artistic. We lost you, Mario. Well, you see, they don't want you spinning the truth, bro, but you just went, you just, your audio just went away. It says you're muted. Oh, let me unmute your mic. You're can't you can't unmute your guest because their mic isn't connected. Hello. Okay. There you Am are. I here. <laughs> gotcha, um, I don't know what was the last thing you heard me say. If you remember, if not, it's fine. Uh, I was actually writing when you said it, but uh, just continue, bro. Whatever, whatever you remember. <laughs> I was actually writing a note. Uh, no, just uh, basically that you know, propaganda is about planting these seeds. Planting you're you're saying about manufacturing culture and uh, sprouting it from pretty much nothing culture creation okay what i was saying where i was getting at basically is that imagination creativity art it actually plays a very very large role in personal freedom in my opinion which is why i think that you know uh, a lot of the arts you know are kind of not really what they used to be and i think that as we continue to just adopt technology and spend more time on our phones and computers and everything else, you know, we are getting less and less creative, arguably, because so many things are automated for us and things like that. But um, I just really strongly believe, but I've been, you know, an artistic guy my whole entire life that if you want to navigate these waters and if you want to be a sovereign individual, whatever that, that might mean to you, I think it's going to take creativity and I think it's going to take imagination you know, so if you can't imagine yourself being a sovereign person living freely, um, then how are you ever going to be that essentially? You know, so I think that there's a major suppression with individual creativity, um, which is why, too, we know that alphabet agencies, they love basically um, the art industry because they can steer humanity in this direction or that direction. So if there is a platform that is artistic, 
you better believe that there's propaganda behind it. You know, you better believe that most of the artists that you're hearing about or most of the films that come out or most of the shows that come out or most of the books that come out, it's all propaganda, you know? And so um, they know how the human mind works. Obviously this is all ancient psychology. Um, And so to me, when I think of an adult creating a children's story or an adult creating a children's show, that is really, really suspect to me. You know, I just don't see why you would be an adult and care so much to educate someone else's child. You know, I could see if you're doing something for your own kid or maybe your own family or something like that. But, you know, being a full-blown adult making shows for like seven-year-olds or something like that, there's just a lot of questionable stuff with all of that. And so um, Dr. Seuss is a part of this whole entire, you know, um, basically wave of like making children small consumers and, you know, and, and basically programming them at a very young age and getting them and their parents mostly to buy these books and to go to the movies and to do all these different things. You know, I see programming for children in a completely different way now obviously we grew up with it. So we watched Nickelodeon and all these different things. But now as an adult, I'm like, why would you spend your time doing this for kids? You know, uh, I think there's potentially lots of nefarious things going on there. Yep. So there you go. The hangman. Again, talking to these, how you're saying the primordial archetypes in order to speak to the subconscious, they put, they use art for this and you see it right here Mm -hmm. where it's the law of correspondence they're mirroring these realities and i wanted to read that excerpt and i've been trying to get hold of this guy but shout out to tekuchi dai and the name of the article is john d scrying magic and it's from the journal of international philosophy and when i read this i was blown away because it just, I like to look at things from a different perspective. And when somebody brings a different perspective to the table, just really makes my nipples hard. And so he wrote, there is also the possibility that he was creating, and he's talking about Edward Kelly and John D. And this is what I was telling you about how this, this imaginary world becomes real. And some people aren't able to decipher it because they're creating their own, realities together right so here you have edward kelly john d both together for hours at a time doing these seances talking to lord knows what but there is also the possibility that he was creating a state together with kelly that could be described as a folia deux, and hopefully i'm saying that right but it's i guess mental mental sickness or illness it is entirely Mm -hmm conceivable that these intellectual background implicitly induced the formation of Kelly's visions as D asked questions directed at angels and spirits and organized and recorded conversations conducted during these sessions. And mind you, they did these things for hours at a time. And the only thing that changes from all of John D and his experiences, because it's very consistent the only factor that never changes is that he was the the scribe. <laughs> so mm. a lot of people argue that he could have been making all this shit up by himself. Right. But there's more to, there's more than meets the other. There's a lot more to the story. 
Angela Voss regards scrying as a method for accessing the mundus imaginalis, a term coined by Henry Corbin. The mundus imaginalis refers not to a fictional world generated by the consciousness, but to an autonomous world that gushes forth involuntarily in a manner that involves the driver of imagination itself. So if that's the ego, if that's yourself, who the fuck knows that? If that's consciousness, I don't know. Fundamentally speaking, scrying commonly constitutes a virtual experience consisting of observations based on the use of a crystal ball as a screen rather than an immersive experience. As noted in these records, however, Kelly sometimes obtained his visions by stepping away from the three-dimensional screen of his crystal ball and using the entire room as a stage in a matter, manner that, that saw him make a complete break from the world of perceptions. In fact, Kelly's mm. vision truly represented a real world of experiences informed not just by sight and hearing, but also by touch. So what I was talking about earlier, architecture plays a big role in the way that you perceive things. So not only was Kelly mm. having visions from the crystal ball he was looking at for 10 hours at a time, but he would have he would invoke visions by stepping away from it and looking around the room. They were said to have Madimi, which is the little girl, running around the room. They could see her running around the room and they were participating in these visions together. They would hear sounds together. They would see it all from the way the light was coming in. And this just reminds me, bro, of right, a crystal ball or a scrying mirror. Well, that's essentially what all these screens around me are right now. Who knows yep. that the same way that D, when he steps away from the screen the scry mirror the crystal ball he sees a vision so reality itself could be a hallucination how do we know we're not hallucinating all the time you know what i mean like that's that's the whole thing about simulation argument and all these things and can you believe we got here by talking about fucking dr seuss <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> so exactly that's very interesting because again that's this concept of being able to warp one's own reality i think that's what was happening with this guy right here he was had this weird warped reality and, and then threw occultism into it because he was in bed with the lizards right stuff like this or like this if you really want to reach right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. right and then the blue the car you're saying the water symbolism a lot of blue yeah that's similar to how the 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 forecasters Put you at ease right mm. when you're watching your news and here he is right here fucking looking at you like a fucking creep and the barber symbolism right you also have that mm -hmm. in there and right, right here you go here he's coming in through through another it's a portal too it's an archway it's a doorway he's coming in yep so yeah exactly and you see how this weird just warped reality you know just it's like a waking dream. He's like a schizophrenic. He's hallucinating all this stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is one of the first books that he wrote. The Seven Lady God Divas. It's one of the first mm. books he ever published in 1939. And it had nude women in it. And it had uh, a very weird wow. concept to it where there was these women would have they would be given they would be given away after they had an, a, a naked encounter with a horse for some reason really weird stuff wow this is your doctor yeah. seuss in 1939 and peeping jack the second they all had peeping tom peeping dick 
peeping jack the second that they were given away to these men that had that the peeping family so mm. who knows what's going on behind this guy's you know this guy's psyche or if, or if this is even mk ultra bro this could be mk ultra you know what i mean yeah right uh there are some very interesting things in the cat in the hat did you notice that the mother is single with mm-hmm. the cat in the hat is that something you picked up on right no father so figure. at one mm-hmm. Father figure, but the cat in the hat, I think, kind of plays a substitute for that, a temporary substitute father figure. So there's actually a lot of family dynamics that come up in the cat in the hat that I was not expecting, you know. And so at one point, they show the mother's bedroom and she has a small bed just to herself. And uh, one of the things actually knocks the kite on the headboard of the mother's bed. And so there's this thump. And there's this sound that comes from right there. You go right there. So there's this thump that uh, occurs from the kite hitting the headboard while thumping in the headboard. I mean, what does that imply? Mm-hmm. You know, and so then right outside the door, you have the child looking in the sun looking in, you know, and then the gown, you know, um, is there on the kite string as well. And so there's a lot of really interesting things that I think Disney kind of played with as well, right? It's mm-hmm. always like a it's the same people home. It's the same people, yeah. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's a single parent home. So the fact that they deliberately made her single and the fact that the cat in the hat who wears a tie and a hat comes in and he's a cat. So if we're going to relate this astrologically, symbolically, you know, the cat would be Leo, which would be the sun, S-O-N-S-U-N. And so I just think it's really interesting that the kids are home alone, the mother is away, and then the cat in the hat enters the picture, and it's a rainy day. So I think the first line is, the sun did not shine. You know, that's the first line in the cat in the hat. I think that's really interesting. The sun did not shine, but here comes this cat, this solar, you know, archetypal symbol enters the picture and then he brings all of this life and mayhem with him you know ultimately though i think the cat is a very mercurial character and so i think there's lots of mercurial symbolism baked into what he represents you know uh, tricks are brought up a number of times good tricks bad tricks and i think of the magician card i think of magic and it's really interesting that the magician actually corresponds with mercury And so Mercury and the magician and everything that's related to magic, uh, they're all very much related, hermeticism, things like that. And so even I thought it was fascinating that there are some older tarot decks where the magician is essentially holding a box. And I was thinking about this the other day. I'm like, well, what does that represent? And I'm like, well, I kind of think of stage magic and I think of the mystery of the box and what's contained within the box, you know? And so um, Mercury is a really, really interesting character. Hermes is a really interesting character. All of the related deities, Thoth, etc. These figures are fascinating because they mean so many different things. They're so fluid that they're kind of hard to actually uh, nail down and pin down in a lot of ways. But uh, the box does have a historical connection with the magician. And so the fact that he brings in a box and it's this mystery, and then what comes out of it? Thing one. Homunculi. (laughs) Exactly. You can look at them as homunculi. 
You could also look at them as the Gemini twins, either uh, twins or siblings, which also is ruled by Mercury, you know? So um, the mercurial energy that emanates from the cat is pretty much off the charts. So that's one of the big things that I wanted to talk about and bring up. Um, I think it was Elsie King who's been on uh, Chance's show Interverse multiple times. He's a great dude. Um, he's the first one who said this to me, but he said, and I believe it's true, he said this several months ago, that he's starting to think that most main characters in films and in a lot of different stories and books and whatnot are actually mercurial characters. And definitely I would say most main characters in mainstream movies especially fantastical, whimsical type movies are mercurial characters. And so um, I think that that is actually true. And so when I read The Cat in the Hat, I was like, well, it's also true here as well. So look at all all the different things he does, um, all his different tricks, you know. Also, the first trick is him balancing on that ball, right? And he has all of these objects. This looks very, very similar to the Magician card, in the Crowley deck actually. And so he's balancing and behind him is a pole and he has all of the elements that are floating around him. And actually this balancing thing, you know, balancing on one foot is symbolic of Mercury in a lot of different ways. And it's actually symbolic of um, the Axis Mundi. And so Mercury has been said to uh, um, balance on the nimble post of heaven as it rotates you know, this is an older reference. And so when you see a ballerina spinning, you know, on one foot or you brought up the whirling dervishes and stuff, you know, this is symbolic of the turning of heaven. But that balance, balancing on one foot is actually a very mercurial thing to do. Um, and then obviously it backfired. So he fell and then whatever. And so the this whole entire book is really just a series of tricks. So I think once again of magic tricks, And then I also think about, you know, the magician's hat, you know, and pulling things from the hat and everything else. And obviously his hat is a key object, you know, to associate with the cat. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so I mean, there's I think there's a lot of deep subliminals in here, you know, and I think that this is actually a more refined story than what people would realize. And I think once again, the thing one and thing two characters Gemini symbolism to the max. I think it's fascinating that they fly kites indoor. You know, this is an air symbol. And then I think it's interesting that they're caught with a net as well. It's almost like a butterfly interesting, net. Interesting, yeah. It's like fairies. So there's all this, yeah, there's all this air symbolism that's connected to them, you know. And um, you mentioned, real quick, you mentioned balancing. And yeah. one of the things that I found really interesting about the show Survivor, I don't know if you've seen it, and I hadn't, I hadn't ever seen it. It's one of the, the longest running shows on TV. It's been a while. Yeah, it's one of the longest yeah. running shows on TV. And I watched the one of the more recent seasons, and it was, I was introduced to the show by that. And a lot of the things that they do is there's the Ouroboros. They have an Ouroboros necklace that they that they have mm. in that show, which obviously the Ouroboros is a, a, a an occult symbol and they do a lot of balancing acts a lot of stuff is survival mm-hmm. it's survival and all the challenges a lot of the time it's standing on a on a post or something like that you know how how long can they balance uh. one time they put the guys up like this like like a like some crazy 
cross their feet were together on some plank right and they it would it would get smaller and smaller every every so often right they'd have to move up but they were essentially like this they had their hands up like this and a cross looking thing like a really uncomfortable position almost like the hangman in order to balance and it was all about who could balance the longest and i found that really interesting. now you're mentioning this right. about the balance and the mercurial aspect of that and it, and it brings me back to the vision of zosimos on virtue where it's this trans the mercurial the the transformation of oneself right he's throwing himself up he's biting at himself and he's eating himself again representative of the ouroboros the is the snake eating itself or is it throwing itself back out into existence you know i've always i've always wondered right. that. so again very alchemical and very symbolic of and that's why i have the ouroboros for those that Make sure to check out my website for the Occultist Monday zine public or uh, monthly publication. That's why I have the Ouroboros on there. And I have the, I put, I forgot what I put for this. this is it another AR, but it's, it's a portal, right? It's like you walk in and you ascend through the, the, the doorway, the, the portal way, whatever you want to call it. So I don't know, man, this is, right. this is, this has been really deep. We got really super deep on, on kind of, do you have anything else to add to all this? You know what? Let me just show you a couple of quick images. And uh, if my internet connection is laggy or slow, we'll bail on that. But uh, I think this will help flesh out a couple of the things that I mentioned. So let's see here. But yeah, you have the... I, I also interpreted the the thing one, thing two as the shadow of the, of the kids. Right? The shadow self. 100 yeah exactly because they're like actually, the mischievous honest, magical aspect of the kids because if you look at them they were they switch places and sometimes but you know it's this this shadow self there you go awesome dude I, I don't think there's any way to not have uh some loose ends here because there's actually a lot to discuss like i said there's a whole family dynamic uh going on there i think there's like some deep subliminal psychological things uh for children maybe to pick up on perhaps not in a good way and so yeah there, there's a lot of loose ends here that we could tug at at some point if you wanted to but so th when i saw the cat in the hat and he was balancing on the ball this was the first thing that i thought of so this is uh, the magician card by crowley and so here you can see that he's balancing on one foot essentially and you would never think that one leggedness or balancing on a foot would mean that much but based on my research and what I've read, a lot of it actually has to do with the Axis Mundi. And so you can see right behind the magician, this vertical pole. And so this pole is symbolic of the pole that we were talking about earlier. You know, this is symbolic of the world tree or world column. Notice that the magician is also number one. So this is the same pole. So this is like um, very phallic in nature. But the way I look at it is this is the North Pole and that uh, the Axis Mundi is what Mercury uses to travel up and down between realms because he is the psychopomp. And so you'll notice, too, that the magician has these really over-exaggerated wings coming from its um, ankles, right? And so this is a mercurial sort of thing because, again, he is the messenger. So he is balancing the elements around him and he is in a state of balance. And then here you can obviously see the cat in the hat balancing on this ball. And so, again, equating the cat to being a mercurial character. Here you can see 
literally the symbol for Mercury right here on the magician card. He's also um, a man of many talents, or a cat of many many talents, right? Because he does all these things. He's <laughs> balancing acts. He brings forward comunculi. He he does all these things. He entertains the kids, which is kind of weird too. Because it's like you're letting a stranger in your house, and then if you see the portrait of Doctor Seuss, the way he sees he sees himself, kind of like a like the cat in the hat so it's are you are you letting this <laughs> this weird chimera inside of your house of right you know what i mean like that's kind of weird oh yeah exactly to me i just i it's really fascinating that there is no father figure around and then the cat shows up and he's very vertical too he's really tall obviously for a cat and then the hat makes him even taller so he almost there's this phallic in my opinion kind of a correspondence with the cats and here he comes and he creates all of these problems, but he also fixes them before he takes off. And so it's like, what is that insinuating regarding uh, the patriarchal figure, you know, in the family or potentially, you know, what happened to their father or what happened to the husband? You know, uh, I thought it was interesting that the father actually they allude that there is a fatherly figure in the follow up to the book so there's a number two i can't remember what it's called but there's a second cat in the hat it's definitely in my opinion the symbolism isn't as interesting as the first one but there is a father figure there um so that was obviously something that they thought about uh before they released the second one and then also so this is a older magician card so it's really funny that you wouldn't think that this figure is the magician but here he is holding that box and so to me, again, the box, uh, obviously there's a Saturnian thing going on there, which I know you know a lot about in the cube and everything else. But I tend to think of the mystery behind it and like what the box actually contains. Um, symbolically, I kind of relate it to the magician's hat and how you can pull anything out of you know, his hat. And then I also think of the four main corners of the box, you know, this structure and this foundation. Um, Here's also another magician card where you see this box right here. And it really does allude to stage magic, right? Um, A lot of times the table almost looks like, you know, it's a magician's table and like he's presenting something to you or he's entertaining you. And that's what the cat is doing too the whole entire time. He just wants to, he's entertaining himself, but he's also entertaining these kids and Mercury as a a planet and deity and everything else you know he's very much aligned with tricks and trickster energy um and so he's very elusive and they can never really tell right what the cat's gonna do next but i just thought it was interesting that this box a red box at that is here as well yeah the colors too because it's they're they're all wearing red the first one's wearing red the second one's wearing red and you got the blue in there mixed in there too yep yep absolutely and then it also is tradition to have the magician holding some sort of rod and so this is symbolic of that same pole right and mm-hmm. so here he's uh he's holding it, it might be a fan and he's done like he's that. the one card too right so he's the yep he's the, the phallic or you know what are the phallus as well yep, and yep. the wand is absolutely. another phallus as well yeah exactly and then uh, I did, you know, light research on some of his other books, but I just thought it was interesting that he has a book called Wacky Wednesday, and then he has a boot with wings on it. And then, like I said earlier, uh, you know, Mercury a lot of times has wings around his ankles, around his feet. He's a traveler. 
Um, and Wednesday is the day of Mercury as well. So to me, it's just one of these things where I'm like, that's not a coincidence. He was well aware of that. So Wednesday being the day of Mercury and then having this boot with wings, you know, I thought was kind of interesting too. And then here you can see him holding the caduceus. Once again, it's that pole. I kind of look at the little knob at the end of the pole. I tend to see it now as the pole star because this is an Axis Mooney symbol. And then also the serpents going up that rod or pole. Um, it's kind of symbolic of traveling up and down the world tree and, or up and down the world column. And somebody, opinion. some there was another article that I ran across where they, they linked the Lorax to the Caduceus. They, they have some, they break it down and they're able to extract the RX of the Lorax into RX, the Caduceus, the, me, you know, the medicine oh. prescription. So you have, again, that weird connection there. And I'm sure if we were to look, I didn't look either a lot, but I'm sure if we were to look and try and find and, and see the law of correspondence and the mirroring of the tarot with the symbolism within the, within the Dr. Seuss art, I'm sure we'd find hundreds of references, oh, you know. I would think so, yeah. It, it's and very obviously the RX, right, prescription, uh, medical industry caduceus with uh, medical symbolism and then Dr. Seuss as well. <laughs> and he wasn't even a real doctor. <laughs> so just, and he wasn't even a real doctor. Yeah, yeah. Well, shit, Mario. Do you have any, any... I had so much fun today and this is why we're here almost two and a half hours later because there's just so much to talk about and I could go on for hours. We're going to save for the next one. I'll think of something for us to do and this was a fucking banger sure. of an episode. Is there anything else you wanted to add anything you wanted to plug let the people know about or any concluding thoughts on what we just went through because this was an alchemical experience in itself this entire episode where we talked <laughs> symbolic literacy ascension portals pyramids john d all that good shit right right you know what man i think i'm pretty good but i just i really appreciate your research and what you bring to the table uh, you like to do these deep dive searches and find all of these incredible books and you're actually reading them too. And so I just think that's a niche that like is, um, you know, giving a lot to the community. And so the handful of things I've heard you talk about that you're putting out there, you know, um, it's been, it's helping fill in some gaps for me. And so, you know, this is giving me a lot of new stuff to research myself uh, and to contemplate and everything. So I think, First and foremost, for me, I'm going to look more into whale symbolism and what's going on there, you know, because I want to pull at that thread and see what else comes around with it. Um, but otherwise, you know, people can reach me at symbolic studies once again, uh, com. They can find me on Instagram, symbolic.studies. I do tarot readings and consultations and study sessions and things like that. So if that's of any interest, just reach out. But thanks for having me on, dude. This was really fun. Yeah, thank you for coming on, man. I, I had a ton of fun today, and this was months in the in the making, so I'm really glad we got to do it, and I'm really happy with how it came out because we went everywhere I wanted to go and more, right? We, I was able to <laughs> dig up some stuff last minute, and it just comes to show if, if you look deep enough, I always tell people a lot of the stuff, it sounds, hey, it could be reaching. Who the fuck knows? But a lot of stuff makes sense to me, man, and I think that the occult is related to a almost everything in, in society because this country was founded with occult roots. So right, make, make right. sure to, I'll post your, your links in the description. Everybody make sure to check him out. 
And Mario, I want to thank you again for coming on, brother. We'll do this again very soon. And maybe we might run into each other before then. So thank you for coming on, man. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.